Alright, so we're back a little late for part two of the Heaven's Gate cult. Technically, I did have coffee while I was doing this, um, but it's afternoon. Any hoozle. Um, we left off discussing kind of the founding formation of the Heaven's Gate cult, also known as HIM, also known as Total Overcomers Anonymous Monastery, with the death of T. Um, one of the two in June of 1985. And you know, a little bit of castration. But first, we got to back up just a little bit because guess what? It's almost time to go back on the road for the second harvesting. By October of 1985, Applewhite had allowed members of the group to travel home to visit their families. I'm assuming this was due to his devastation over Bonnie's passing. Um, side note, from this point on, I'm going to refer to them as Bonnie and Applewhite. Uh, every so often, I might say Joe or T uh, in a reference or a quote or something, but just to clear up any confusion, because they did have so many names. <laughs> um, most of the families of these members had not seen nor spoken to their loved ones for over a decade or nearly a decade. Now, after spending a pretty significant amount of time with their family and long-lost friends, all but one member returned dutifully back to the group. No questions asked. They were like, okay, good to see you. Uh, won't see you ever again. So for the next eight years or so, they stayed pretty low-key in respect to being in the public eye. Some members did work outside of the group. They worked as waitresses or store clerks. Sometimes they sought assistance from local churches. And eventually they were able to save up enough collectively to purchase campers for their travels. Because remember, they had been just pitching tents at kind of ratchety, rugged campsites. So now they've upgraded to these nice campers. As we know, they later upgraded again to quiet upper middle class neighborhoods after one member got trust fund money. So they kept busy, you know, denouncing any and all things sexual. They followed intensely rigid guidelines where sometimes your tasks, tasks, excuse me, changed every 12 minutes and you had to uh, just be constantly showing up for this new task every 12 minutes. You had to make sure that your pancakes were the exact same size. Um, they spent time cleansing their bodies of all impurities, including those sexual thoughts, along with fast food. And according to former member Richard Ford, who's also known as Rio D'Angelo, and he will become a very important part in this story later, um, he states that they would sometimes drink the master cleanse for three straight months. What is the master cleanse, you ask? <laughs> okay, let me tell you. It's a mixture of lemonade, cayenne pepper, and maple syrup, which was originally born in the 1940s to Stanley Burroughs, but it was reintroduced in his book, The Master Cleanser, in 1976. They busied themselves in silent solitude for days on end during what they referred to as tomb time. And during this time, members were not allowed to speak to each other. Sometimes there would be two meetings a day and tuning forks were handed out. They didn't give any solid instruction with these forks. They were just told to hold them on their heads in an attempt to rid themselves of human thoughts. Now, all members of the group were assigned a 
check partner. And this was a person within the group that they were to do everything with during the day. Eat, sleep, any activities, all of it. To make sure that nobody got fresh with each other though, they purposely paired people off that they believed would be the least attractive to the other. And to make sure that no one fell into some type of romantic involvement, they frequently rotated partners. Now, through the strict and rigid lifestyle, they did have moments of relaxation. Um, Of course, it was all approved by Applewhite in advance, but they could choose to watch TV shows such as Star Trek, The X-Files, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Wars. I think you're starting to see the pattern here. And it was actually TV that would unknowingly spare a former member's life. Now, I briefly touched on this in part one, um, but one member, if you watch the documentary, his assumed name is Sawyer. His real name is Steve. I'm not going to use his last name here because it's very clear that he's trying to keep some type of anonymity, even though he appeared with his face and his voice on the documentary. Um, But Sawyer was struggling really hard with sexual urges and he was giving in to masturbation frequently. So he says that he turned MTV on one day. Now, whether this was approved by Applewhite or not, I don't know. Uh, And he saw women dancing and he was like, whoa, they could really get it. So the urges were just too strong. Like he immediately went and had to take care of that urge. So later on, he passes Applewhite and Applewhite asks him, you know, why have you been so distant lately? And Sawyer comes clean and says that he thinks he needs to leave the group after 18 years as a member. Now, while Applewhite was disappointed, telling Sawyer that he had the potential to become a great member and he didn't want to just throw that away, he did give him money for airfare and treated him with respect for his departure. Um, And you find that a lot when people say that they leave the group they always say that actually leaving is harder than anything because everyone is so supportive and um, respectful and Applewhite typically always helps them financially. Um, so that's that seems to be a common theme. Sawyer was also one of the original members who had volunteered for surgical castration. And the idea of the castrations was introduced to make their transition to a genderless world easier and to help stop the whole nocturnal emissions issue. Um, As I said before, a member of the group who had been a nurse performed the castration on a member and it nearly resulted in his death. Um, He had some swelling and just a whole lot of unpleasantness. Um, I don't know a serious surgical procedure being performed by someone who maybe didn't know exactly what they were doing could have had something to do with it also. And at first the group hesitated to go to a hospital because they were afraid of any legal consequences. According to Sawyer, Applewhite was distraught over this and he actually said that he needed to be arrested. He's like, I need to be taken to the police. Whether he actually believed this or not, or if that was just put on for show, we will never know. But the members were like, absolutely not. And they wanted to protect him at all costs. Ultimately, they ended up taking the member um, who was nearing death due to his procedure to the hospital for treatment. But they found doctors who would perform the procedures and a total of eight members were happily castrated. 
um, somebody reports that they are like super excited and giggling about it in the days leading up to the procedure. So, you know, more power to you, I guess. Um, not all the men, there were 18 men, um, at the end, at the closing, at the exit of Heaven's Gate and, um, only nine total, including Applewhite, had been castrated. Now, Sawyer ultimately decided against castration before his departure, and reports also state that at least one member was like, yeah, this is too wild for me with all this castration business. Like, uh, catch you on the spaceship later, and left the group. Now, in 1992, Applewhite began producing videos and then broadcast them by satellite. And in May of 1993, he took out a one-third page in the USA Today newspaper. So it's pretty big. It's going to circulate a lot. Uh, The headline ran, UFO cult resurfaces with final offer, declaring that the Earth's present civilization was about to be recycled. So that got some attention. Now, in January of 1994, the scant group, because remember, in the 70s, this group had hundreds of followers, reportedly near 1,000 followers at one time. They sell all of their, quote, worldly possessions, and aside from a few cars and changes of clothing, and they go on the road. And they start holding meetings for the public, and they're doing media interviews, all in the name of the Second Harvest. Now, Applewhite was out there just posting up a storm about the group to dispel rumors or misunderstandings on Usenet. Now, that was created in 1980, and it was basically an electronic message board, um, kind of like a bulletin board system with threaded discussions. So, essentially, it was like the OG internet forum that we all know today. While they were out on the road recruiting, the group was actually pretty stealthy in their their ways, despite, you know, their well-known presence in the videos and the newspaper ads and the public meetings. They used P.O. boxes and fake addresses in the states of Colorado, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and Minnesota. Some addresses that they would give would lead back, um, some addresses like physical outside of P.O. boxes, they would lead back to empty fields near big box stores like Best Buy. The internet domain that they gave contacts for would lead to a Ramada Inn in Denver and internet providers in Fayetteville, Tennessee. Um, They did give phone numbers too, but when someone tried to call them, they would be contacted to representatives for a California company that tried to reunite lost friends for $69.95. And I'm like, when I was reading this, I thought, was that intentional? this company who reunites long lost friends. I mean, it had to be. Um, so they've been out doing this for a couple of years. Now it's October of 1996 and Applewhite has recorded a video titled planet about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive leave with us. And the group had been earning a pretty steady income by offering professional website development from their business called higher source and renting a multi-million dollar 9,000 square foot mansion in Rancho Santa Fe, which was a wealthy area in San Diego, California. Um, Finally, in this time frame, what they've been waiting for, a sign comes because in, excuse me, in November of 1996, Art Bell 
which um, at the time was the host of the Coast to Coast AM radio show, starts receiving calls from people like an amateur astronomer, a political science professor, and they're telling him that they've been capturing images of a large, quote, Saturn-like item trailing behind the Hale-Bopp comet. Now, the Hale-Bopp comet um, was to be the closest comet nearing Earth since like thousands of years I'm sorry, I don't know the exact year. And it was discovered by Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp. And that happened independently of each other, um, both on July 23rd of 1995. Now, most likely this item behind the comet was a sodium tail. But these callers were like, for sure, this is a companion alien spacecraft, which is called the Hail Mary. It's not known if the initial call was meant to just be a hoax or maybe if it was simply a mistake. Um, But either way, it was like big news to Heaven's Gate. A quick side note, though, is that Nancy, I believe it's Leader, um, could be Lighter. It's L-I-E-D-E-R if you want to look this up. She says that she received messages from aliens directly through an implant in her brain. And she states that her message was the Hale-Bopp was designed to distract everyone from the pending arrival of Planet X. Now, according to Nancy, Planet X was supposed to show up in May of 1993. No. And then in 2012. No. But maybe. Like, I mean, sometimes I wonder a little bit about 2012. So, maybe. But scientifically, um, no. Anyway, Applewhite and his followers were like, holy moly, like, this is it. And they go out and they purchased a telescope, just knowing that they were going to see Bonnie, also known as T, on her spaceship. And when they didn't see a damn thing, guess what they did? They took the telescope back and said, yeah, your telescope doesn't work. (laughs) So ever faithful, they put their plans into motion for T to come and swoop them up. And previously, Applewhite had discussed obtaining firearms to make themselves appear as a threat to police so that they would be killed. Because this had happened in other cults. Um, They were kind of just spitballing these ideas from um, more aggressive cults at the time or that had come before them. Um, But that plan was quickly cast aside due to like just the general unpleasantness of it all. They didn't want to go out like that. Um, You know, this was not some big, massive master plan to like cause hurt and panic and chaos. Um, They just wanted to leave their vehicles behind. So they were like, no, we're not going to do that. So they had some more meetings of detailed discussions on the plans to end their lives. And five members were like, um... I'll catch you guys later on the spaceship. Like, I'm out. Um, And they left. But the remaining members, they were completely devoted. Just to kind of give you an idea um, of the power that these two, when they were together, had held over the members. During the early days of the group, Bonnie and Applewhite held a meeting. And several members didn't attend this meeting. So their punishment was Bonnie and Applewhite said we got to go reflect on how we have failed you as leaders. And they were so powerful over these members. I mean, they just held so much power, so much devotion 
that a few days later when they returned, members reportedly wept with shame and they were so relieved that they were back. So the rest of the members were like, absolutely, we got it. How would you like us to end our lives? Before the suicides, um, they had a website, as we mentioned briefly, and it was updated with a flashing red alert warning and the following message, quote, Hale Bop brings closure to Heaven's Gate. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from the human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. So, what do they do? They start living their best human lives. It's a little confusing to me based upon the 22 years of shed everything that's human about you, but like, all right, okay. So they go on vacations. They went to Vegas and did a little gambling. I believe they won like 20 bucks. They went to the zoo. They went to the beach, just went out and lived. They had a Christmas party. They held talent shows. They put on a little show for Applewhite, and um, some of this footage is in the documentary, and I highly suggest, um, A, watching the documentary, and B, uh, watching this. I mean, you can find the footage online, too, but um, it's bizarre, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't know another word to use other than bizarre. I mean, fascinating, obviously, but they just their facial expressions they are so similar in every single way even to the way that they smile the way they hold themselves like it's it's bizarre um but that sounds rude so I'm gonna say it's fascinating um so they they sing this song and what they did is they took this song do re mi from the sound of music because if we remember that is how t and do even got their names and they just create this homage to Doe and T. Um, and it's kind of interesting to listen to. And actually, it was really kind of pretty. They um, they had nice voices. They made a nice little choir. So I would suggest checking that out if you are interested. Then they embarked on a last supper of sorts at a Marie Callender's restaurant. They ordered the exact same drink, same meals, same desserts. Like, I don't know why. If you are here from TikTok, which I am sure that you are, um, you may have seen some videos that I have done in the past discussing inmates' last meals, death row inmates' last meals. Like, that's something that I find myself just, I'll be sitting around if I have a moment and I'm like, I'm, what can I look up to just read about real quick? I find myself like Googling last meal information. It's a weirdo thing that I've always done. I don't know. So I was very happy to find that they told us what they had. Um, and if you're interested, great. If you're not, I'm sorry. It's really quick. So it was iced tea, salad with tomato vinaigrette dressing, turkey pot pie. First of all, could you imagine turkey pot pie at Marie Callender's restaurant? Like, you know, it was banging and cheesecake with blueberries on top. The staff reported that the group was very friendly, very polite. No one seemed depressed or off or gave any indication at all that they were about to kill themselves.
so they began to write out the detailed plan of the process. And it went a little something like this. Groups of 15 would kill themselves by consuming applesauce and pudding laced with barbiturates, followed by vodka, topped off with a plastic bag tied over their heads, and they would be assisted by eight members. Once the first 15 members had died and they had their purple diamond-shaped shrouds placed over their bodies and had been cleaned up after, the second group would follow suit, being assisted by the next eight, until there would be nine left in the final group. That was the plan. On March 20th, 1997, members began recording their exit interviews. And these are basically videos of the members explaining how they made this decision for themselves. They hope that their families understand. They apologize for any hurt they have caused. Um, Some of them get pretty emotional, a little choked up, um, you know, and they begin to cry, but it's not being presented as um, sadness for the end of their lives. You know, they all say, I'm the happiest person. Um, I'm so excited. It's more so that they are getting emotional and crying because they're going to go be with T. And some of them have never met T before. They didn't know Bonnie before she passed away. They joined the group after during the second harvesting. So um, it's interesting that they are getting just so emotional because it very eerily mimics Applewhite's own emotional cracks while he's talking about tea during his recorded sessions. Um, And one of the, um, I believe she's a cult expert um, in the documentary. She touches on this too. Um, So it, it is very interesting. I recommend checking that out. On Saturday, March 22nd, 1997, 38 of the followers of Marshall Herf Applewhite began the first stages of their exit. Now, interestingly enough, Applewhite was not the last to die. And I didn't know that. I just assumed that he was the last one to go. Even though I had seen the images of him, um, I didn't think too deep about it. I was also um, 11. So um, he did not. He did not go out last. He um, went out with the second group. He was actually found alone on the bed in the master bedroom. Now, the final group, like I said, was to be nine members. When they were discovered, there were two members that were not covered in shrouds. However, they did have the plastic bags over their heads. So investigators were able to kind of figure out, you know, um, a timeline of who went and who assisted. And the last two clearly were the last two remaining. Um and had their cocktails of sorts together. Now, on March 26, 1997, Richard Ford, again, Rio D'Angelo, he was a member who had joined in 1994. So not that um, in the grand scheme of things, because some of these, like, you know, 22 years, some of these members have been with the group in classroom. So on a bigger picture, he really wasn't in the group very long. Um, But anyway, he left just a few weeks before the suicides took place because he claims that he woke up with a feeling that he still had things to do on earth. Um, He received a package from the group which contained messages of farewell, an address, 
with a letter declaring, quote, we have exited our vehicles just as we entered them. So Ford has his boss drive him from LA to Rancho Santa Fe, and he finds a back door unlocked at the property, and he just goes inside, and he's got a video camera. I read in some sources um, that he was asked to go in and take this footage regardless. That's the first thing that he does. He goes in, he records what he finds, and after he leaves the home, he calls 911 around 3.15 p.m. to report what he's found. Uh, To this day, he claims that he still believes in the teachings of the group and that he firmly believes that Heaven's Gate was the second coming of Jesus. Um, Not the group, but that the founders, um, Applewhite, you know, this was for sure the second coming. Now, it is important, though, to mention that he made mad money on interviews after this. Um, Eventually, he published a book, and he's now a spiritual teacher and a master of soul development, which is great. Those are great things. Um, Just hopefully they are, you know, his teachings are in the right way. When San Diego sheriffs arrived at the home, they discovered the bodies of 21 women and 18 men, ranging in age from 26 to 72, dressed in black pants, black shirts, and they were all wearing patches that said Heaven's Gate Away Team, with black and white Nike decades poking out from underneath their shrouds. They were all discovered in various stages of decomposition. Regarding the shoe choice really quickly, I just kind of wanted to touch upon this because it is a pretty popular topic um, if you research this. Former members claim that they were purchased solely, (laughs) see what I did there, because of a deal that they got on a bulk purchase. That was it. It wasn't because of the design or anything like that. It was financially motivated purely, according to these members. Dick Joslin, though, says that they were chosen because Nike's slogan is, just do it. Um, Either way, these shoes are actually a pretty coveted item um, for collectors in the sneakerhead community because naturally Nike stopped producing them after this event. Um, A pair of decades were previously listed on eBay for the cost of $6,660. We see you. Um, found on the bodies were driver's licenses and other IDs tucked into shirt pockets. I've also seen that they had passports, um, which would make sense, you know, but widely reported it was driver's licenses. And most members also had $5.75 in their pockets. Now, in the documentary, Sawyer says that this was derived from the 1907 Mark Twain tale, Extract from Captain Stormfield's Trip to Heaven. Within this story, there is a line that reads that the cost to ride the tale of a comet into heaven was $5.75. Rio D'Angelo or Richard Ford, says that this was actually a response to one of the members being harassed by police for vagrancy. Now, an item of interest found within the home were several dog-eared copies of David Siegel's, I believe it's Siegel's, S-I-E-G-E-L, 
um, book, Creating Killer Websites. Again, Creating Killer Websites. And he goes on to talk about how that was just um, unfortunate timing. And um, you can read about that. (laughs) Um, As for the Heaven's Gate website, it is still up and running today. Like June 12th, 2021, you can go to that website. It's still there. It still looks like a coal chamber fan page that I built in 1999, but it's still there. So out of all the things, I don't know why, that is the creepiest part to me. It's wild for me to be able to go on the website. I don't know why. Like logically, it should not be wild, but it's the weirdest thing to me. So anyway, I just want to let you guys know, you can still go visit it and you can read about their message. It's all still there. Um, it's believed to be manned by two surviving members, Mark and Sarah King, and they're largely assumed to be living as a married couple. Applewhite allegedly told them to just hold off for a couple thousand years on ascending so that they could maintain the group's presence. I'm going to say that again. He asked them just this tiny little favor. Can you just wait for a couple thousand years so you can keep our website going? What? Anyway, if that is true, they gladly accepted their mission. Um, The admins of the page did tell a Reddit blog, quote, the information must be available to mankind in preparation for their return. We don't know when that will be, but those who are interested will find the information. Now, if you email that address listed on the website, Someone will reportedly respond to inform you that the group ended in 1997 and they are not accepting any new members. Um, It's also reported that the website contains secret codes and they're used as keywords for search engines and for um, proselytizing. So you can look more into that. I just found that incredibly interesting. Um, The house itself in Rancho Santa Fe left big remains um, of the suicide. I didn't mean to say remains. I'm probably going to edit that out. Um, Blood stains on the floors and the wall, um, which was a result of the decomposition of the bodies. Now, when you're looking at some of these images, um, it is a little surprising because the blood, you know, it basically, um, because some members had been deceased for nearly three days, things started to seep bodily fluids, blood. It began to seep out of their, you know, mouths, noses, things like that. But some images, um, and there's a few videos too, they do like a walkthrough and a tour. The blood is kind of spattered, like splattered on the baseboards and the wall. Um, I don't know much about blood spatter and the science behind it. I mean, like I watched Dexter that's about the extent of my knowledge. Um, so I was surprised that it was like so splattery. So if any of you know anything about that, feel free to send me an email about it because it was really interesting. Anyway, um, not long after the suicides, the home was purchased by community members for $668,000 and it was bulldozed and rebuilt from the ground up. 
um, you know, not only did it have the the blood stains and just the obvious signs, um, there was other noticeable related <laughs> marks. Like the wallpaper was ripped off from gurneys banging into the walls because they were carting out 39 bodies, uh, probably in a little bit of a frenzied state for those people. Um, so the house itself was just like, ugh, they got to get rid of it. And community members were like really sick and tired of all of the media. And just, I would imagine people driving by and like gooseneckers and all of that. So they eventually changed the street name as well. Now the owner of the home at the time of the suicides lost it to foreclosure and was later convicted of fraud and conspiracy, but it's unrelated to Heaven's Gate. Just a little, you know, tidbit, not related to that. Um, it was last sold, as far as I could find, in 2010 for about $4.5 million. Now, before we close, I want to mention a few things, again, on the power of the hold that Applewhite had over his followers. Um, if you watch the documentary, you'll hear a man named Frank Lyford. Um, he went by an assumed name of Andrew after leaving the cult 18 years in. He was actually a cousin of one of the members um, and an ex-boyfriend of another of the 38 who took their lives. And he has noticeable vocal struggles during the documentary. And it's not um, nobody says anything about it or he says nothing about it until like midway through the documentary, which is fine. I mean, um, I just assumed that nobody... When you're watching it, it doesn't really, you, you're not sitting there like wondering like, what happened? What happened? Why do you sound like that? Um, it's just his voice. But he does eventually address it. And he says that the reason that he has these struggles is because Applewhite humiliated him, causing the difficulty with his speech. Um, it was in the morning and they were all gathered in the meeting room, the living room. And um, Applewhite was taking questions. And when Frank rose his hand to make an observation and he spoke, Applewhite mimicked the depth of his voice with excessive bass to basically remind Frank, you're identifying with being overly male. Like, we don't want to do that because we're trying to enter this genderless world. You sound too much like a man, Frank. And um, Frank was like filled with rage because he was human, like he was being mocked. He was humiliated. Um, and gradually he developed the issue with his voice. And it's really sad. Like when, if you're watching this documentary and you find out that's what's causing these vocal struggles, it's like really, really sad. But I am happy to report that my man, Frank, who lost the love of his life. Okay. His, his ex-girlfriend, Erica, um, was the love of his life. And he so badly wanted them to leave the group together. Um, like when they went out and they were able to visit, they were in an airport. And he said it was like the first time that they had been um, in an area together that he just had this overwhelming sense to hug her. But again, you know, hugging was like a no-no most of the time. And he says in the documentary that if she would have been like, yeah, I want to go. Like they would have went off together. So he just never stopped loving this woman. And to me that that is, I cannot imagine living in the same house as the love of my life, 
but you can't have a relationship with them. Bonkers in my mind. Anyway, he, you know, had all of these horrible things happen. His voice struggles. He lost the love of his life. He, you know, lost the ability to speak confidently because of this one man. Um, He got himself an RV and he is traveling the country, okay? Learning to have fun for the first time. And I'm like, it's so wholesome and touching if you watch it. So good for Frank. Dick Joslin left the group after 15 years in 1990 when he decided that he wanted to establish his own identity. Um, He became a gay rights activist and eventually worked on coming to terms with his recognition of being brainwashed. He is the only former member to have referred to his experience as brainwashing. Um, Sadly, though, Dick passed away from complications with AIDS in the year 2000. Former members Wayne Cook and Chuck Humphrey ultimately decided that they wanted to be with their class. And in May of 1997, they attempted suicide by ingesting the same cocktail as the 39 others. Wayne Cook um, was successful and found deceased. However, Chuck removed his plastic bag in the last few moments and survived. Um, They carried this plan out in a hotel And so authorities found them and was able to get Chuck medical treatment and he survived. However, he would later kill himself in an Arizona desert wearing dark clothes like his classmates with his away team patch on the sleeve. And he did so by sealing his head into a plastic bag with pipes running from his vehicles, uh, his car. There's some confusion because they call their bodies vehicles pipes running from his car's exhaust. He was found with a $5 bill and five quarters and a purple shroud next to him. As I said in part one, um, there are several books that I want to read and revisit this at a later date because there is literally hundreds of hours of reading in front of you. Um, I read somewhere that there's a podcast about Heaven's Gate. Like, the podcast is solely about Heaven's Gate. Um, so I want to listen to that too, because there's just so much. Um, there's actually some pretty recent insights from a former member on WordPress regarding the media and anti-cult crusades. And this member says that Dick Joslin was being paid to say that he was brainwashed and things like that. So it is interesting. Um, one thing that I did want to mention from the documentary that I wasn't sure if I was going to include or not, but I feel that it is important to know before we go. Bonnie was doing everything that, well, not everything, but Bonnie was doing things that she told her followers they were not allowed to do. One of these things was to write letters to her daughter um, very frequently, like once a month. And Uh, Several years after the suicides, there was a group reunion and Bonnie's daughter, Terry, attended this reunion and she brought all of these letters and she starts reading from these letters and people are like, yo, (laughs) I'm sorry, she was doing what? Um, They're pretty pissed off because they had to sever all ties with their family. I did read about another member that um, did communicate with her family and they were just kind of like, yeah, do what you got to do. But 
I didn't read that very often. Um, mostly you are reading that it was very, very strict. You were to have no ties with your former life, family, friends, none of that. So members were understandably like outraged that Bonnie was just breaking her own rules. Um, so I thought that was an important thing to know about the two. Um, you know, Bonnie would call her daughter, but Applewhite would always be on the other line. So, like, he knew about it. I think that maybe he probably was breaking the rules, too. Um, if that was the case, Bonnie and Applewhite, you suck because that's not cool. I'm a big stickler about rules, and I feel that if you're going to make rules for people, then you need to follow them. I digress. Um, to close, I just want everyone to know that the Heaven's Gate followers believed that the earth would be recycled by 2027. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but um, we haven't had a great couple of last years. So, I don't know. You see a lot of t-shirts that say, Heaven's Gate, were they right? Like, I hope not, but um, 2027. And I will leave you with that. So thank you so much again for your patience. Um, if you want to see some images, images of what Heaven's Gate thought that they would look like once they ascended to the next level, um, you can go check that out on Instagram, which can be found um, at A Pine for True Crime, along with some other images that you've probably seen before. But if you're not familiar with this, they might be new to you. Um, and as always, you can send me an email at apinepodcast at gmail.com, or you can come hang out with me on TikTok at dusty vibes with an I. Okay. So, um, I will see you for the next one. And as a reminder, this was actually a suggested case. Um, so feel free to suggest them because I have fun with that. Okay. Bye.